from Russia with love. Welcome to the Weekly Standard Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Graham. Whatever Russia is sending over to the Trump administration is certainly not from Russia with love. And I was asking Philip Terzian, not only our literary editor, but the man who apparently knows everything and everyone about the problems Trump is having with Russia. And you pointed out, Phil, that it's not the first time that Russian-American relations have caused domestic political problems. Well, Russia, definitely since the since the 1917 revolution, it's been a issue in American politics for a century now. Of course, we didn't even recognize the Soviet Union until 1933, 16 years after the revolution. So although in 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 many ways it's a funny thing, um, nobody as much cared about Russia as a subversive element in the world since the end of the Cold War in 1991. And it's uh, kind of interesting now that 72 years after the end of the Second World War and the beginning of the Cold War, uh, the Democratic Party is now suddenly interested in Russia as a possible uh, peril for America. You mean they weren't nearly as interested when Alger Hiss was on trial? Is that well, what you suggesting? Well, they had a different attitude. Mm-hmm. Toward, they, they were more nuanced about all this. Back so then. when you think of uh, American-Russian history, and particularly having an impact on domestic politics, what are the stories, events, the people who spring to mind? Well, it's interesting because... Um, uh, we we have had this kind of ambivalent attitude toward Russia, as we have with many foreign countries. Uh, for example, after World War One, uh, there was a great famine in Russia, and even though the then uh, Republican administration uh, didn't recognize Soviet Russia, President Harding authorized the shipment of vast amounts of wheat to the starving mm-hmm. Russians, the starving communists, if you will, <laughs> which was a big controversy at the yeah. time. Uh, in 1933, when FDR recognized the Soviet regime, that was a huge... And of course, there have been over the years um, many espionage episodes beginning in the 30s. And I mean, they were downplayed in the 40s, obviously, because uh, Soviet Russia was our gallant ally in the fight against fascism. <laughs> but uh, certainly in the post-war era, I would say for the first decade after the end of World War II, Russian espionage was a major political uh, um, uh, topic right. in America. Yeah, that's, to me, when I think of American political figures whose destiny was truly impacted by Russia as a political force, not a, a military force, et cetera, I think of Richard Nixon. Is it? Would you? There are people who argue that without communist Soviet Russia, there is no President Richard Nixon. Would you agree? Well, I, that's... Probably true because he he first came to uh, uh, public notice in the Whitaker Chambers Alger Hiss case in the late 1940s. I have to interrupt you because anytime someone says those words, I have to say the phrase "prothonotary warbler." Yes, I just yes, have to course. say that just to get it on the record, and we can move on. And now. that and the Underwood typewriter and all the other uh, uh, phrases that are probably quickly disappearing <laughs> from the folk memory about these things. But no, no, that was that was what brought Nixon to 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 fame and glory at, at that time, and probably one of the reasons why he was elected to the Senate from then Republican-leaning California in 1950. And then he had that infamous moment as vice president where he became America's debater-in-chief. Well, in 19, I guess it was 1959, uh, there, was a, there was a trade fair in Moscow, and of course that was the height of the Cold War. We were, we were enemies of the Soviet Union, although obviously not at war with them, and we had, as I often point out, we, we had embassies in both capitals all through the worst of the Cold War. 
And in fact, there was a American exhibit show, typical of the time. It was in a, it was to demonstrate the typical American household with a typical American kitchen and two-car garage and all that sort of thing. It was sort of designed to show the Russian people what they were missing. And Nixon and the then Russian leader Nikita Khrushchev got into a quote, debate, unquote, in the kitchen part of the exhibit where Nixon defended the American way of life and Khrushchev attacked it. And so it became known as the kitchen debate and probably did Nixon no harm. <laughs> and then uh, the willingness to fight communism and stand up to communism led, of course, unavoidably to Vietnam. And then Nixon was able to ride that. Is there another American political figure that either benefited or was hurt by kind of the Russian-American relationship beyond their own individual action? Well, consider John F. Kennedy, for example. Um, Several things happened to him. I mean, just a few months after he was inaugurated, um, he uh, uh, pushed the button on a invasion by Cuban exiles of Cuba, which uh, wasn't supported militarily, and so it was a huge catastrophe, and there was that. Then he met in June of that year with the aforementioned Nikita Khrushchev in Vienna, where the consensus was that uh, Khrushchev kind of got the better of, of Kennedy. Kennedy seemed sort of intimidated by him, which some people would argue emboldened Khrushchev later that year to install um, offensive nuclear weapon uh, missiles in, and weapons bombs in in Cuba, which then led to the Cuban Missile Crisis, which Kennedy managed to pull out of uh, favorably. So in that sense, he recovered well politically, but this, but Russia gave him some problems there. I've always been interested in the fact that so many Americans opposed Reagan's foreign policy towards the Soviet Union. They supported detente. They supported appeasement. They supported, you know, whatever, live and let live. Uh, Senator Ted Kennedy was actually communicating secretly behind the Reagan administration's back to try to aid the Russians in dealing with uh, with uh, Reagan. None of the Democrats or people on the left paid a political price for that. You know what I mean? Like John Kerry was a lifelong opposed Reagan, detente, work with the Russians, Reagan's wrong. And then when Reagan was proven right, he was the nominee of his party for president. And I don't think the issue even came up. But that's interesting to me. Well, I think the the, the attitude of the Democrats has, has evolved over time. I mean, you could say that Republicans always had an advantage in during the Cold War because they were seen as the hardliners against the mm-hmm. Soviet Union. And most Americans tended to like that. And so the Democrats were at a disadvantage because they were believers in what used to be called uh, peaceful coexistence and rapprochement and so on. But on the other hand, I mean, Kennedy got a lot of uh, brownie points politically for for his uh, test ban treaty in 1963 with the Soviet Union, which conservatives were very upset about, he he weathered the building of the of the wall in Berlin, which was a huge blow to American right. prestige, really. But uh, proved we weren't really willing to do too much uh, to help the Germans under those circumstances, West Germans, I should say. Um, so the the other thing to remember too is that there were two Reagan policies toward the Soviet Union. There was the first term where he was the uh, the cold warrior who talked about the evil empire who wanted to spend the Soviet Union out of existence and so on. And then there was the second Reagan who once I think he perceived after Reykjavik that the Soviet Union was, was on the run. Uh, he wanted to engage uh, the Soviet Union and of course they had the new 
open leader, Gorba, reformist right. uh, leader, Gorbachev, at, at which point conservatives were very unhappy about Reagan's attitude. So Reagan, in some ways, benefited from both uh, being a very cold, cold warrior and also being a uh, ultimately a believer in peaceful coexistence. <laughs> Well, look, we all know what really happened, how we really won the Cold War. First, we beat the Russians in ice hockey at Lake Placid in 1980. That was step one. Then step two, we sent Rocky over to box Ivan Drago in Rocky IV. And after that, it was it was all over. No, but you've forgotten when uh, Boris Spassky um, was defeated by Bobby Fischer ah. in the World Championship. Although Bobby Fischer was so obnoxious and difficult that many Americans who otherwise had little or no use for the Soviet Union came to sympathize with the Russian chess player. <laughs> Stories like those are the reason why we invite you to the podcast. Thanks so much, Philip Terzian, literary editor for the Weekly Standard, for joining us. We appreciate your time.